Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here, and it really is good to be back and to see so many uh, loving faces. And what Pastor Jeremy did say, the fact that if you don't have a church home, this really is a church home. Uh, Jessica and I, when, I moved, when we moved here, did not have our families with us. Uh, my parents are in Florida, hers are in Massachusetts. And so this church very much was a family to us and still is. So if you are in the area and you don't have a church home, do feel encouraged to come back. Uh, you will feel loved. You will feel full because of the food that they will give you. Uh, but it will be worth it. And so it's a pleasure to be here. We'll be in John chapter 8 this morning, so you can make your way over there. But in thinking about the years that Jessica and I were here, we thought about all the, the good memories that we had, some memories not so good, as Pastor Jeremy mentioned. We are not perfect. You will not find a perfect church. And if you do, as soon as you join it, it will cease from being perfect. Uh, because it's not. We are not perfect people. But it is a loving church. We've been through ups and downs. We've encountered joy. We've encountered sorrows. And I'm sure many of you in here today have um, experienced these parts of life. However, if we are to experience them, should we not experience them with the people of God who care for us and who will walk with us and rejoice and weep with us? As I mentioned, we'll be in John chapter 8 this morning, but I would like to pray before we begin. Lord, our God and our Father, we thank you for the grace that you have shown in our lives. Were it not for grace, we'd be forever running while losing the race. And that is a sad, sad truth that many of us run and run and run and waste our lives. I just pray for your spirit to be at work here this morning in my heart, giving me the words to speak, to be faithful to your calling, to be faithful to what you've called us to do. And open our eyes this morning for those of us who believe to keep believing, for those of us who don't believe to see with fresh eyes of faith the life that is in Christ. We are in desperate need of your grace this morning and in every day. And I just pray that you help us, teach us what we know not, give us what we have not, make us what we are not by your grace. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In our age of mass media and instant communication, it's common for us to become overwhelmed with disasters. And uh, if you, all you have to do is turn on the news and you will see that 99% of what they give us are nothing but terrible, terrible things. Uh, and with this comes the fact that we become numb to certain things, to uh, seeing killings and death and suffering and sorrow, and we hear of terrorist attacks and natural disasters and, and wars, and we hear so much of that that it ceases to bother us. Uh, we are no longer moved as we once were, uh, even individuals as, as, and as a humanity in itself. Um, and so we even tend to become so accustomed that when we hear such warnings of incoming disasters, we brush them off as either unconvenient or inconvenient or unimportant. 
but unfortunately, in many cases, the warnings and the threats that at first seemed unimportant and seemed inconvenient tend to cause a great deal of regret. And there's a few things in this life that bring greater regret to a person than to look back and see that a life-changing event or a life-changing disaster could have been avoided. I'm sure many of you here perhaps have uh, had times where maybe as a child or even as an adult you've ignored or heard a warning and did not heed to it and you suffered the consequences and perhaps you may be dealing with that even now, living under the weight of the guilt of the choice that you made. One such event, which occurred on April 14th, 1912. Is April 14th the day that you two are planning to get married? Yes. Oh boy. Okay. Let's pray this isn't the case. I did not intend for this to be the case, but... On April 14th, 1912, some of you may know the date. But on this evening, Jack Phillips and Harold Bride were busily working as wireless operators wireless communication operators for the well-known Titanic. Jack and Harold were busy, as usual, trying to send out a massive backlog of personal messages from the pastors to, uh, from the pas passengers, I'm sure there were pastors in there, uh, sending these messages to a station at Cape Race over on the corner of Newfoundland, uh, Canada, and then that station would transmit it to New York City, their intended destination. Well, in the midst of all these messages, their signal began to be blocked because of an overwhelming amount of messages coming towards them and coming towards the same station that they were trying to reach. Some of these messages were usual messages of communication, but some of them were warnings of incoming ice. But because of the inconvenience and because of the overwhelming amount of messages, the operators became angry and foolishly ignored the ice warnings. And they never passed the message along to the captain. Now the rest of the story is known. And if you don't know, you don't have to watch the movie. It's not good. <laughs> but one of the worst tragedies of history in which over 1,500 people lost their lives, could have been avoided. In fact, they were not the only ship in the area. There were many other ships. They had a sister ship coming behind them about an hour who heard the warning and slowed down. There was a, another ship, the USS Californian, who was actually an hour ahead of them. And they're the ones that, one of the ones that sent messages, and they actually stopped for the night because of the ice. However, the Titanic continued full steam into a block of icebergs. We affirm, and we rightly so, that God is sovereign. And that not a single molecule of this universe acts apart from his providence and from his allowance, allowing. He is sovereign over creation, over nature. He's sovereign over even salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. But even though this is the case, we make day-to-day -day choices that are real choices. They have real consequences. And they really do matter. Obviously, not every choice carries with it the same amount of importance, but 
Some really are important. Some choices affect not only ourselves, but they affect others. Uh, some choices affect not only our present circumstance, but they affect our eternal circumstance. And they have eternal significance. Even if you don't believe there is a God, that choice affects your eternity, does it not? Even if there is no God, that still affects our eternity. Therefore, it is crucial to make wise decisions in light of any warnings or any advice that may come from those who have walked before us. It's been said that tradition, which we often as modern wise people look down on, tradition is the dead man's democracy. What that means is, just because someone's dead does not mean we should not listen to their voice. Just because they're dead does not mean they don't have something worthy to listen to. And because of our foolishness, we have tended to make more and more unwise decisions that have been committed before us, and we simply ignore history and tend to repeat it. Jesus came to this earth on a mission. He was sent by the Father himself to seek and save those who are lost. He came, not only to be, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did not come as a slaughtering lion, but he came as a lamb to be slaughtered for the sin of the world. We're familiar with texts such as John 3.16, John 3.17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that, we, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In John 3.17, For God did not send his Son to condemn the world, or to judge the world, but so that through him the world might be saved. And we love these truths. We live by them. We stand on them. And we, we stake our lives on them. But one aspect of, of Jesus' mission that we take for granted and that we forget is that he came as a messenger from the Father to tell us and to proclaim to the world a very important message, what the Father himself wanted us to know. Jesus did not come only as a conquering king, he did, to defeat sin and Satan and death. And he also did not come only as a high priest to offer himself as a propitiating sacrifice for our sins, but he also came as a faithful prophet to proclaim to us the word of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, which those of you who have been at CBC might remember, what was that, maybe five years ago that you started, Hebrews? No, that was, that was not that long ago. Cool. Tells us, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. You see, Christ came to bring a, a, a fulfillment and a final word from God. He came to relate to us the world, to the world, the word of God himself. And that's why he's called the word of God. He is the full revelation and the exact image of the invisible God. And as a prophet, he came as a trustworthy watchman to warn us of the incoming danger. Now, this task of watchman was common in those days, especially for cities that were protected by walls and without satellites, without GPS, and all those things, they had to keep somebody posted on top of a tower to keep watching the surrounding 
areas for any incoming danger. And the watchman was supposed to, at any site of danger, to warn the people. Should he fail to warn the people and an incoming army come in and destroy everybody, their blood was on his hand. I would say his or her for correct terms, but back then women were not watchmen, so uh, forgive me for that. But he came as a watchman to warn us or something. But that was, he was not the first one sent by God to do that. You see, God himself was a watchman in a garden. He warned Adam and Eve of the danger of dishonoring him and disobeying him. He sent Noah to warn the inhabitants of the earth of an incoming flood. He sent Abraham and Lot to warn the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He sent Isaiah to warn Israel. He sent Ezekiel to warn Israel again. He sent Moses to the Pharaoh and to Egypt to warn them of the incoming plagues. As we know, these warnings were unheeded by most. And they ignored them, and we know the consequences. Now, our passage this morning shows us a glimpse of Jesus himself making a warning. He's working as a prophet, and his words were of extreme importance then, and they are of extreme importance now. Many in those days ignored his word, and I pray and I hope that that will not be the case with us this morning, but that we may hear and we may heed the warning. And as we will see, our hope is found in the fact that Jesus is not only a warning giver like those who came before him, but he is a life giver. He is not only the one who tells us of the incoming danger, but he's the one who protects us from the incoming danger. He is the rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Right? We can hide ourselves in Christ. So let's read chapter 8 of John, verse 21, and we'll go through verse 30. And if you're not there, I will give you some time so that I can pour myself some water. Verse 21. Then he said to them, again, I am going away, you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You are from below, he told them. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who are you? They questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true. And what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you lift the Son of Man, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. 
The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. So in the beginning there, we see that John, uh, Jesus gives them uh, quite a clear warning. And he says, I'm going away. They were in the midst of this very heated dispute in the middle of this Jewish festival. And Jesus is making some bold claims. And they're constantly trying to arrest them, trying to take them away. And for some reason, we call it God's providence. They couldn't do it. Um, but Jesus gives them warning and says, I'm going away. You cannot come where I'm going. And the result of that is that you're going to die in your sins. Now we would think that such a massive claim and such a massive warning would at least be, would at least cause them to question Jesus' claim or to at least inquire about it and find out a little bit more information. But they don't even do that. They ignore it completely. And I think the reason they ignore it is because they were blinded by their self-righteousness. And we see that in the text right here. Their response, instead of saying, hold on a second, we're going to die in our sins. Oh, isn't that what Ezekiel said? Isn't that what Isaiah said? Isn't that what all the prophets have been saying? Instead of saying that, they turn it around and Jesus and said, Jesus, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill yourself? Is that why we can't go where you're going? See, in the, to the Jewish mind in those days, suicide was something that would automatically condemn someone to the deepest and darkest parts of hell. So in their mind, because they're so righteous and so well-respected by man and, and by God, they would never go to the darkest pits of hell. So if there's any place where Jesus would go that they could not follow, it must be hell itself. Because surely they were on the way to heaven. So they say, is he going to kill himself? Who is this guy? So they completely miss the warning. And the question is, how many of us miss the warning because we're so caught up in our own self-righteousness? Notice he says, you will seek me. Earlier he had said, you will seek me and you will not find me. Later he even tells his own disciples, I'm going away. And you will not come. Not yet, but you will. But here, he tells them, you're going to seek, and you won't find. In fact, you'll seek in vain. And we see earlier in chapter 5 of John, where Jesus tells the Pharisees, 539 and 4, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. Well, shouldn't we be searching the Scriptures, trying to find life in them? But then he says, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Yes, we are thankful for the Word of God, but let me tell you something. This is a means to approach the presence of God. It is the Word of God. It is God's revelation, but it does us no good if we use it just as a means to make ourselves feel better. As long as it keeps us from pointing us to the real source of truth, this Word matters not one bit. There's only black marks on a white paper. Some of you may have red marks on paper, but... Sometimes we get so caught up with the signs that we miss what it is pointing to. I always think of my cat when I do this. You may have heard this. My wife probably heard this many times. Our cat, like most cats, think they deserve the world. And every time we're eating something, she starts bothering us to give her a treat. So we throw the treat in front of us, like good owners, and point to it. However, like a good little Pharisee, instead of going to the tree, she comes and licks my finger. You see, she's satisfied with the sign of my finger, completely missing the actual gift, the actual 
retreat. And we so time, so often get so caught up in the signs, in, in even in the, the word itself. And we become so caught up in it. We get so caught up in our actions and in our works in church and in all that we do that we miss what all of this is supposed to point to, which is God himself. God is our inheritance. Think about it. When we go to heaven, will we need a written word of the Bible? No, we will have the living word. Now, I stand firm in truth that this is the word of God, inerrant, inspired, uh, unfallible. However, it will do me no good if, I'm, if it serves the opposite of what it's supposed to do. And that is exactly the Pharisee's case. They knew so much about God's word. They knew so much on how to answer on spiritual terms that they missed the warning. Surely he's not talking to me. But to die in our sins is a massive, supreme disaster. They trusted in their self-righteousness. They trusted in their heritage, their religious heritage. We are sons of Abraham. We are the people of the promise. But they sought in vain. How many of us say the same thing? I'm the child of the pastor. Or I'm the son of the worship or I've been in church since I could breathe, or I was baptized when I couldn't even brush my teeth, and I was do this and that, I, 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 and we miss the point. We are trusting in ourselves and miss the fact that if we don't go where he's going, we will die in our sins. And this reminds me of Psalm 24, and we're asked, where's he going? He's going to the Father's presence. Why is it that they can't go? Well, because... Only one person can go. Look at Psalm 24, verse 3 and 10, 3, 3 through 10. You can listen, you can turn there. And David, what I think is here, he's composing the hymn of what is going to be going on at the moment where Jesus ascends into heaven and he's entering the presence of God, having been accepted as the Lamb to receive the scroll. We see that in Revelation. I think it's something similar. I may be wrong, but. Here's, here's the, the hymn that he composes. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear swiftly, he will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now let me ask you this. It, any of us pure in heart? Any of us have clean hands? Any of us turn away from what's false all the time? I don't think so. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is it that can come into the hill of the Lord? The, queen, the King of glory. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So who has access to the presence of God? Only God himself. And you and I stand no chance of entering his presence. Not on our own strength. Not unless we are carried there. Not unless we are hidden in the cleft of Christ, the rock of ages. Jesus then notifies that he understands that they have a very high view of self, and their high view of self leads to a low view of sin, and their low view of sin leads to a low view of God. And a low view of God leads to a loss of a need for a Savior. So Jesus reminds us, hold on a second. If there's anyone here who is going to the pits of hell, it's not me. 
You're the ones who are from below. I'm from above. You're from this world. I'm not from this world. John, once again in 1 John, tells us, do not love the world or the things of the world. For the world is passing away along with its desires, along with all that's in it. So if we belong to the world and the world is going to pass away, then we'll pass away with it. But if we somehow, by some means, can become part of the other world, then I suppose we would stand safe. And that's what Jesus is wanting them to understand. They have no hope. Only he has access. And Paul reminds us in Romans 3, he's quoting tons of Psalms, and he's saying, no one is good, no one is righteous, no one seeks after God, nobody does good. All have gone astray. So first thing that we must fight is self-righteousness. Even if we are true Christians, even if we are true believers, self-righteousness keeps us from coming to the throne of grace to receive more blessings. Trusting in ourselves rather than trusting in Christ. We seek in vain. Now Jesus repeats the warning, verse 24. For this reason, I told you, you will die in your sins. For unless you believe in me, notice the qualification, unless you believe me. So there is hope, right? You will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. Now, in, in the original there, it's, it's, a best translation would really be unless you believe that I am. And so a lot of people run with that and say, see, he's making a, a claim for deity. Now, Jesus is God. But, however, in the context, it's better to understand that as saying, unless you be believe that I'm, I am who I'm claiming to be. He's going to make a claim of, I am the I am from Moses later on, but I think right now he's saying, unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, unless you believe that what I'm telling you is true, unless you believe that I am the giver of life, you have no hope. You are lost. You are dead in your sins. And the reason for that is what we fail to understand because we're told all the time that we are the greatest thing since Wonder Bread, right? We're, we, we don't need anything. All we need, if we do need Jesus, is just to make life a little bit better. Jesus is saying, no, no. I am everything. I am not just the cherry on top. I'm a, not just a way to a better you. I'm not just a bellboy in heaven. If you reject me, you reject life itself. John Hughes, a commentator, says, What we think of Christ is of paramount importance. We can think he's the greatest of teachers, and that he is sinless, and, and that we can dwell upon his and we can dwell upon his perfections. We can believe he is brave and kind and honest and compassionate and truthful. We can even idolize him. We can pray to him, but that is not enough. We must believe who he really is. Notice their second warning that Christ gives also misses them, and they completely ignore it. First, they ignore it for self-righteous reasons. We don't need this. We don't, we're perfectly fine. We go to church. I know a couple of verses. I know some of these things. In fact, they knew a lot more than a couple of verses. They had, some of them had uh, books of the Old Testament completely memorized. So, of course, they had no need for a Savior. But this time, they scorn his warning. Who are you to be telling us these things? Who are you? We're the Pharisees. And maybe you may be saying, who's this guy I think he is? 
believe me, I'm not the one telling you this. I'm just relaying a message. But they were blinded by their arrogance. How many of us are so angry at God that we just completely ignore everything he says? We are so proud and so hard-headed that whenever we hear anything, although we know there's truth in it, we ignore it because we just want to go our own way. We want to be like Frank Sinatra and be able to say, I did it my way. You have that choice. Go ahead. However, as we've seen, it doesn't lead you to any good. Jesus then clarifies. He says, who am I? Well, I've been telling you this from the beginning. Well, who is Jesus? What does the Gospel of John tell us about Jesus? And we'll see this, that that is one of the main reasons for the Gospel of John to be written. John himself said at the end, I've written all these things to you so that you may believe that he's the Christ, and then believe and you may have life. So who is this Christ? We see in chapter 1 that he came to his own. His own did not receive him. But to all who received him, he gave the right to be called children of God. Oh, so through him we can become children of God. That's who he is. Verse Chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his own, one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have life. So he's a life giver. Verse 36 of chapter 3, the one who believes in the son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the son will not see life. He won't even see it. He has no idea what life is. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So he is something that, for some reason, removes the wrath of God from us. Because we are underneath the wrath of God, as he's told us. We're from below, he's from above, we're of this world. We're in desperate need of his grace. So, so far, John is telling us that Jesus is pretty important. Truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who hears my words and believes in me, believes him who sent me, has eternal life, will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty. So not only does he give us life, but he sustains our life. So you might be saying, I'm already a believer. I don't even need to be here. Yes, you do. The fight for the Christian life is to keep believing. It's to keep believing, to keep fighting for joy. Verse 40, for this is the will of the Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I'll raise Him up on the last day. Verse 47, truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. And we eat bread every day, and we are about to eat tons of food, and we all will die. But those who eat the bread that come from heaven... And I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, we'll live forever. Truly, I tell you, verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. This is the bread that came from heaven, that you may have life. 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So not only are we dead, but we are blind. Verse 51 of chapter 8, Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my words, you will never see death. Chapter 10, verse 10, A thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me, and I give my, them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. It's not only does he give us life, not only does he provide for us, but he gives us protection from the, the wolves and the false shepherds and the false teachers. Jesus said to her, 
I, verse 25 of chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So we will die, but we won't die. He is the resurrection and the life. But those who die in their sins will die and will die. Those who die in the Savior will die and live and never die. If that makes sense. Chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, the life. There is no other way, no other truth, no other life. Many people uh, speak of God as being on top of a mountain, and we, through all our different religions, climb the mountain through various ways. As long as we reach the top, it will be fine. However, here's what they miss. Yes, God may be at the top of the mountain, but we are dead at the bottom. And that's a little problem because we can't climb if we're dead. Now, I would be able to maybe have somebody drag me, but they're also dead. So what the gospel tells us is God comes down from the mountain, picks me up, gives me breath, and climbs up with me. As you can see, Jesus has made some bold statements. And if we're going to be honest, even if we don't believe him all the way, if we're going to be honest, we should at least ask ourselves, is there truth in what he's saying? Could it be that he really is the only way? For us to just simply hear it and walk away is just to be arrogant. And I, and I believe this is what we should do to every religion. If we hear the claims of, of Islam, don't just turn away from it, examine it. How does this align with what reality really is? When we hear the claims of, of Buddhism, of, of Hinduism, examine it. If we were to be honest, the reason why most of us are here is because our parents are Christians. And if we were to ask, why do you believe what you believe? You would say, well, because uh, mama believed it, her mama believed it, her grandmother believed it. And there's goodness in that. However, that should not be the reason why we trust in anything. We should seek to know truth for itself. And I pray that you are not ignoring the hope. Not to, as we can see, and I mentioned earlier, in conclusion, says the Baptist preacher, 45 minutes before he finishes. <laughs> in conclusion, Jesus does not just give us warnings. He does not just leave us hanging. God is not, does not delight in the death of the wicked. He does not find joy in just telling us that we're going to die and, and too bad. No, he gives us hope. Look at verse 28, 27, 28. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, he's speaking there of his crucifixion, but John is famous for double meanings. He's at the same time speaking of this crucifixion of being lifted up from the earth, but he's also speaking about his exaltation. You see, his crucifixion was just the first step. He was raised, lifted up from the earth. He was lifted up from the grave. Then he was lifted up from the world and into ascending into God's presence. He's saying, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He. So all your ignorance, all your self-righteousness, all your arrogance will go away if you simply look at the lifted up Savior. That's what he's saying. 
I, I guess I should have told you this before, but the title of this message is it only takes a look. That's all it takes. Sometimes all it takes is a spark. In this case, all it takes is a look. All you need to do is look at the exalted Savior. There is power in the cross. See the Christ manifested. Jesus had said this before in John 3, 14. Uh, For this reason, the Son of Man, or just as well, the Son of Man will be raised up as Moses lifted up the serpent, so that whoever looks unto him and believes will not perish. And he says later in chapter 12, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. If you are not looking, you will miss it. All it takes is a look. However, it's not just an entrance into the kingdom. It is the way to continue in the path. And the narrow path is to continue looking. So are you struggling with ignorance? Look to the cross and see the glory of God. Are you struggling with self-righteousness? Look to the cross and see your sin slaughtering the Son of God on the bloody death so that He receives the wrath of God on your behalf. Are you struggling with doubt and fear and worry? Look to the cross. He who gave His own Son, will He not also give Him? Give us all things. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things? What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Are you struggling with discouragement? Look to the cross and see the power and the wisdom of God. Hebrews 12, where he says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Why? Because he endured suffering, looking to the joy that was ahead of him. So yes, Christ is our Savior. He is our atonement. He is the life giver, but he's also an example. He is also a strength giver. He has given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love, self-control. And we do this, we accomplish this by looking to the cross and looking to his exaltation, looking to his glory. So are you struggling with whatever it is, with sin, with giving up sin? Look to the cross. They looked, we see in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Some of us here today are looking. Will you look? I'd like to finish reading... um, Some of you may be familiar with Charles Spurgeon, considered by many, or called, the Prince of Preachers. He lived in the uh, late 1800s or so, and he was uh, the pastor at um, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, and he's known for making the gospel very clear. In all his messages, he made the way of salvation very, very clear. He was raised in the home of a pastor. He was a pastor's son, a pastor's grandson, was raised and was educated using Christian literature and reading and learning from the Puritans. So if there's anyone that, that could know the way of salvation, it was him. However, when he was in his teenage years, all this knowledge became just a weight on his shoulders. He felt the burden of sin, but had no idea how to get rid of it. And so this is his own personal statement, and he's saying, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning. While I was going to a certain place of worship, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. 
In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did, that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And I would pause and say, if only some of us would start thinking like that. Like, it doesn't matter what people look at me or what's going on in my circumstances. I only want to know how to be saved. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for a simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly. But that did not matter. There was I. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Hey, he said in the broad Essex, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to the God, to God the Father. No, no, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some on ye say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then, the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on a cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When he had managed to spin out, spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me, as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. <laughs> Maybe that wouldn't be bad. <laughs> However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I thought I could look until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun. 
I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them and the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to Him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you'll be saved. Yet it was, no doubt, all wisely ordered. And now I can say, ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Some of you are looking in so many places, trusting in your family heritage, trusting in yourself, trusting in your membership of a local church, trusting in the faith of your parents, trusting in the faith of your spouse, trusting in your knowledge of the Word of God. Many of you are trusting in your financial generosity. Many trust in their baptism or in their emotional experience. Many trust in many things, but unless you trust in a true life-giving Savior, your trust will be in vain. Unless you trust the true Christ, you will die in your sins. But that needs not to be the case. Why? Should you die when there is a way of life? Let's pray. Lord, our God and our Father, be gracious to us. Help us to look. There is life in a look, but we must look at the right place. Many of us are looking elsewhere, looking at worthless things, looking at things that merely amuse us and entertain us and waste our time. And I pray that you will help us to look to the Savior and to Him lifted high and exalted. Help us to find grace as we come to you. And that's all we can do is ask and trust that you are good and you are great. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.